Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, before we dig into this text and before we meditate on these words from Paul and before we as a faith family receive, in the middle of the month, usually it's our custom the first Sunday of the month to receive communion together. And then, of course, we have it available every Sunday for individual Christians to meditate and remember and examine them li- their lives in light of Jesus' work. It's a little unusual for us to do this in the middle of the month, but we're doing it because the text that we're handling is about this. But I want us to think before I read just about how peculiar what we're about to do is when we really think about it. Let's be honest, friends. For the past several centuries, really, uh, many more than just several, for the past 2,000 years, Christians have gathered together in little underground houses or huge cathedrals, and they have gathered together to partake in a feast together A feast that is not meant to satisfy the stomach. In fact, just the size of the elements that we're going to receive today would clearly tell you if you were just sort of transported here from some culture that had never heard of Jesus' work on the cross or the message or the idea of the Lord's table, you would understand instinctively that what we're doing is not to satisfy our stomachs because these little bits of bread and these little tiny little cups of juice are more than that. They're deeper than that. They're beyond that. They're meant to satisfy our spirits. And, and then they commemorate the death of who these people eating and receiving these elements believe is the sovereign creator, savior of the world. Friends, I think we would do well to an onlooking world if we just every now and again admitted that that's peculiar. And it is intentionally peculiar. And it is, as I hope we will see today, the richest feast on earth. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this text, the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I have four points today. I'm going to give them to you now. I realize that I have made you an outline-dependent congregation, and I am sorry, uh, but that's just the way I am, and as a result, I think that's the way you have become. So let me give them to you now, and then we'll work back through them, so don't feel any need to write these things down quickly. They'll be back up, and then, of course, they'll be on the internet uh, tomorrow afternoon. The four points that I think this feast, this richest feast on earth points us towards, it points us, it orients us in four directions. The first is this feast points us to one another. This feast points us to one another. Secondly, this feast points us to remember Christ's work on the cross. It points us to what the sovereign creator, Savior God did on the cross. Thirdly, this feast points us to examine ourselves in light of what Jesus has done. And then fourthly, this feast points us to the future when Jesus will come again and make all things new. Well, let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, and then we'll work our way back through that. And as we're doing that, remember these four chapters, chapter 11, 
12, 13, and 14 are particular instructions to the church gathered. And so we're going to finish up chapter 11 today, and then we're going to start working through very important uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14 that deal primarily with spiritual gifts. Actually, we're going to start that in two weeks. Will Hawk, our youth pastor, will be preaching next Sunday. So buckle your seatbelts. That's going to be awesome. I'll be here, but Will's just going to get in the saddle and throw some fastballs. Uh, and so I'll have to readjust my little microphone after he messes it up. Um, but then we'll be good. It'll be awesome. Um, so today we're going to finish chapter 11. Well, let's, um, let's read and pray and work our way back through it. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this beautiful text. And Father, we come to you with great humility. In the name of Jesus and because of his work on the cross, we come to you asking for illumination, for wisdom. Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room that have grown up in a church culture where receiving the Lord's table and the elements that represent your broken body and spilled blood just kind of became rote and tradition or maybe misunderstood and strange and odd. 
Lord, I pray for Christians in this room today all across the gamut of understanding of what this feast means. I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit that we have sung about today, help us to see and savor Jesus, that our hearts would be stirred with affection and love for the work of Christ on the cross, that we would not be people that merely agree with the gospel and then move on to self-absorption, but that we would be people who cannot get past and are freshly freshly amazed at the good news of what Jesus has done in His death and His burial and His resurrection. Do that, I pray for us. And Lord, for people that are in this room, and certainly there are people in this room of a crowd this size that do not know You, maybe they are aware of the fact that they are not yet Christians and they're investigating Christianity. They're here at the invitation of a friend. Or maybe, Father, they think they're Christians, but they're not. Lord, would You cause them to be born again? By your sovereign grace, would you cause their dead heart to come alive so that that heart could exercise repentance and faith and believe the gospel for eternal life? I pray that you do these things, Lord, for your glory and for the joy of your people. In Christ's mighty name, amen. Point number one, this feast points us to one another. I think it would be helpful to kind of understand what's going on in the Corinthian church in Paul's letter to them. The Corinthian church was this beautiful work of the gospel. We've talked before. Remember that Paul had founded this church several years earlier, and there were virtually no Christians in the city of Corinth, and Paul hooks up with this other couple, Priscilla and Aquila, who are also tent makers like he is, and we read about this in Acts chapter 18 several months ago when we kicked off this series, and they began to, to plant the gospel in this community, and the church begins to grow like wildfire, and rich people, and poor people, and, and educated people, and uneducated people, and slaves, and free people are coming to know Jesus, and they're trusting in Christ, but as is the case with people like us, they're, they're bringing a lot of their culture with them. They're bringing their, their sexual sin. They're bringing their broken ideas about marriage. They're, they're bringing their misunderstanding of how men and women should relate to one another, bringing their self-absorption to this church community. And we'll read about their self-absorption and their spiritual gifts in the coming weeks in chapters 12 and 14. But they're also, in many senses, bringing their cultural divisions. They're bringing their north side and south side. They're, they're bringing their, their, their cultural stratifications with them to the church community. And the gospel that has hit their hearts that has saved them still has some work of sanctification to work out in their lives and to create in them this sort of one new people in all areas of life. And so what's happening is, is you've got a sort of demographic division in the Corinthian church where there are some wealthy people who likely are the hosts of the church meetings because they likely had the bigger houses. And so they're likely the ones that weren't church buildings at this time. That didn't happen for another hundred years or so, even maybe further after that. And so probably the wealthiest person that was a Christian in the Corinthian church would be the host of the worship gathering because they had the largest room available for the church to gather. And this is probably a group of people less than 100, probably 40, 50, 60 people, far less than the number of people that are in this room today. 
And, of course, the rich people who had their rich friends, some of them maybe have converted to Christianity, are sort of in this sort of social connection. And then there are obviously some poor Christians and people from all, all spheres of society becoming Christians and now meeting. And what's happening in this, this communion, this feast, when they would gather, they would eat and then they would also worship, and then they would regularly remember Jesus' work on the cross. And they would, as Jesus told them to do in Matthew chapter 26, the Last Supper, the night, before, the night that he was betrayed, he told them to, when they would gather together as a church, receive this meal to remember his work that he was about to accomplish in the next few days on the cross. And so this supper, this communion meal became a part of the rhythm of life and worship of the first early church. But in the Corinthian context, people are starting to uh, not realize the importance of this feast and bring in their cultural divisions with them. So Paul is admonishing these Corinthian Christians to break down these demographics, to break down these social barriers. And what was happening is the rich people likely would be able to cater in their meal. I mean, they would be ordering out carabas. Vans would be lining up outside the mansion or the very wealthy house. And the, the poor Christians who were probably workers, who were probably still slaves, who just got off work, who probably arrived at the meeting late, were, were probably having to stop by the dumpster of Hart's Chicken and pick through it and maybe get a little, you know, drumstick to bring to the meeting. And so... The rich Christians are feasting on Carabas, and the poor Christians are nibbling on the chicken wing, and there's right away this division, there's this sort of insensitivity that's happening in the Corinthian church. And then, oh, after they have this meal, then they're supposed to eat, and, and, then, and then they're supposed to receive this, this communion together, and it was, it was incongruent with their confession. And Paul is saying to these Corinthian churches, and he's saying to us today that, that this feast, when we, gather around this temp- when we gather around this table as Christians, we should realize that it's doing something. It's pushing us out to look outside of ourselves. Well, it's different for us. We don't cater in meals, or we don't bring food with us regularly when we gather together for public worship. Remember, their worship services were sort of intertwined in also their fellowship events within their houses. So that's not the way necessarily our, our corporate worship works for us, but friends, do, do there not still exist among us even subconscious social divisions? I just want to press on us a little bit. Is your sphere of social connection merely people that are in your social economic demographic? that's the case, I think that the Holy Spirit would want to press on us this morning as we come around this table to think about what Jesus has done and press us outside of ourselves. Is your primary group of friends and your primary social circle just a group of people that are kind of in your stage of life? Are you upper middle class and all of your friends are upper middle class? Do you have any friends that are maybe in another neighborhood? Are you young and you're a college-age kid and all you want to do is hang around other college-age kids? You need to get outside of your little group. Are you old and you just want to 
Maybe you just want to hang out with people that want the music low and, you know, that'll tuck in their shirts and actually comb their hair. There's something that happens when a community grabs a hold of the gospel. They, they begin to, this, this sort of homogenous principle where everybody looks alike just sort of fades away and, and there's these strange sort of cross-pollinating social connections that happen. And, and old people start hanging around young people and, and black people start hanging around white people and oriental people start hanging around Italian people and, and, and people from California become pastors of churches in Georgia and, and Auburn fans start, start I don't know, they, they start actually going over to people that are Alabama fans' houses and, and they razz each other but it's not antagonistic and, and people that like more liturgical worship start loving the gospel together in a community with young kids who like guitars and drums and, and there's something unique and beautiful and enriching and Christ-oriented that happens in a community when the gospel takes root. The things that divide us in the minds of government and social surveys waste away and then they become sort of a mosaic of beautiful, gospel-centered, Christ-saturated love. But it doesn't just happen because it happens. The gospel takes root in our life and we consciously make an effort to be pointed towards one another. I don't think anybody is intentionally sinning in this area in this body. Maybe you are. If that's the case, I pray the Holy Spirit would pop you right in the nose. If you are intentionally sinning against somebody of another ethnic group or uh, economic group, I pray that the Holy Spirit right now would just jack you right in the mouth. But I think probably for most of us, it's an unintentional, it's a, it's a sort of subconscious sin of not commission, but omission. And for you and for me, and I would fall into that group. I pray that the Holy Spirit would also pop us pretty clearly right in the noggin and lift our chin up and say that this feast points us to one another. The people who love Jesus, who aren't like us. And the people who don't know Jesus, who aren't like us as well. All right, point number two. This feast points us to remember Christ's work on the cross. Let's look at verse 23. This feast points us to remember Christ's work on the cross. Now this is the heart, I think, of what Paul is saying to these Corinthians. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is Jesus speaking, now this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. First thing that I think that we need to think about when we realize that this feast points us to remember Christ's work on the cross is we have to understand exactly what happened on the cross. This is at the very heart of the gospel, friends. This is something that hopefully you will hear over and over and over here at Crosspoint. The heart of the gospel is, is that God, in His gracious, sovereign pleasure, created all that is. And as a pinnacle of His creation, He created mankind, that's you and me and everybody that has ever lived, and all of us, from Adam and Eve to every person in this room, 
has rebelled against God, except for Jesus, who's the only perfect human, God-man, in the flesh. We've all rebelled against God. And that sin, whether inward and not necessarily as obvious, or public and horrendously consequential, brings the righteous and holy wrath and judgment of God. And as a response, as a solution to the rebellion of his creation, not because it snuck up on him, but because he planned this before the foundations of the earth, God comes himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect human, to be the one who obeyed where we rebelled, and to store up this righteous sacrifice on the cross, and then to allow his body to be crushed and sacrificed for us. And then he died, and he was literally put in a grave, in a tomb, and then he rose again in victory over that death, sin, and all of its consequences. And now has ascended to the right hand of the Father where he commands all people everywhere and every person in this room to repent and believe and to trust in him as the only mediating work, the only sacrifice that averts God's wrath and holiness and justice and turns that wrath into favor. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what the Bible is all about. The Bible is not a collection of good sayings that sort of help you get through the week. What I just said to you right there is the heart, is the crux, is the storyline of the gospel from Genesis to Revelation. Let me read to you a scripture in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. Romans chapter 3. It's been a while since we've read this. We We need to come back to this text again and again. Friends, these seven verses that I'm about to read you are what Martin Luther, the great reformer, called the very heart, the crux, the center, the apex of the Bible. And and these verses explain to us what the gospel is, what these verses outline for us, and understanding it and receiving this truth is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's at the very heart of the gospel. It's at the very heart of the message of the Bible. And it's at the very heart of this feast that we are going to receive together. It's this, it's this outline of what Jesus has done on the cross. Let me, let me read these words to you in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Paul writes, and I'll stop along the way because if you're just cold on this verse, if you haven't thought about this verse, it, it may be difficult to understand at first. But Listen, engage. Paul writes, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What's that verse saying? It's saying that that God is righteous and holy, and He created us in His own image to be like Him, but we rebelled. We'll talk a little bit about why that might have happened, why God even allowed rebellion in just a moment. But we rebelled against God. And so God, in His righteousness, doesn't just wink at sin. He, he, in his holiness, must keep order and righteousness. And he doesn't defame his character. And so he, he gives this law that we know of as the Old Testament law that points his people back to him. But it was insufficient. And ultimately, now God, in the person of Jesus Christ, has, has brought righteousness 
in the person of Jesus, apart from the Ten Commandments, apart from this written law, this, this law of God, this way that things are supposed to be, has now showed up in the flesh, in the form of Jesus. And that's what this verse is saying. Now there's this righteousness. Now there's this representation. Now there's this holiness of God that isn't just written on a stone that Moses brought down from the mountain. It's now here. It's Jesus. Verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. Listen to these words. They're justified. People that are Christians are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So what that verse is saying is that we are made right. Again, we are now able to stand before a holy and righteous sovereign creator of the universe with right standing simply because of grace. It's a gift. And it's through the redemption that is in Jesus. In other words, it's not through church attendance or anything that we do or any moral effort for cleaning ourselves up, but it's based solely on the gift of Jesus' righteousness that he accrued in his perfect life and then gave to his people by him sacrificing his perfection on the cross. And then it says in verse 25, listen to this, that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. This word propitiation is so important. Many modern translations of the Bible don't have this word in there, but it's a good word. You should know this word. You should write this word on a sticky note and put it on your mirror and repeat it in the morning. Propitiation. That'd be awkward, but do it anyway. Propitiation. This word literally means that God, that Christ on the cross absorbs judgment for the sin of his people. That literally the wrath of God is absorbed and satisfied by Jesus and then diverted into God's favor. So Jesus takes the wrath that God pours out on him and he turns that into favor that God now pours out on his people that trust in Jesus. Friends, that's why Jesus' body was broken. That's why Jesus at that meal said that this is my body which will be broken for you. That's why these little chips of bread, that's what they represent. The broken body of Jesus that absorbed the punishment that should have been yours and mine. Here's the deal though, friends. I suspect most of you know that. If you've been coming to Crosspoint for more than a couple weeks, you know that. But here's the danger of where we live and how we have minimize the gospel in our culture, that somehow becomes routine. That somehow becomes sort of blasé, as if it's just the beginning of Christianity, and then we move on into the good stuff, like how to have a good marriage, or how to control your anger, or silly little self-oriented self-help messages. Friends, you can't get past the gospel. The gospel doesn't just save you, it sanctifies you. Remembering this work is what nourishes your soul to not just be saved, but to fight sin. To realize that Christ took it away. You don't need this at one moment when you raise your hand at an altar call or something like that. You need this, we need this, I need this every day. And that's the heart of the gospel. There's two challenges here, aren't there, when we think about propitiation, this broken body of God himself that received our wrath and turned it into favor. favor. We, we do two things. 
We minimize sin. We minimize our sin. I'm not as bad as the next guy. Friends, we could spend all day on this, but I won't because this is not where we necessarily need to settle down. But the seriousness of our rebellion as human beings, the seriousness of our sin, does not come from how it compares to the sin of other people around us. The seriousness of our sin has to do with the dignity and the worth and the value of the one that we're sinning against. And although we sin against one another all day, every day, ultimately, as David says in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned, Lord. I mean, at the end of this service, if I just kind of went ballistic and I just ran up and just tackled Paul Fincher, which might not even be physically possible, but if I just went and tackled him, you know, I mean, and then I like got over and I started yelling. I mean, there'd be some consequences for that. Probably, probably go badly for me, but I, I mean, a few minutes after, things would probably return to normal. But, but if President Obama came to Fort Benning to speak to the troops, and I went to visit that, and I busted through the barricade, and I tackled President Obama, the President of the United States, uh, there would be more consequences for that, right? The value of the office, the value of the, the dignity of the one whom we are sinning against is what makes sin so, so vile. Do you see that? Or, or do you just compare your sin to the next guy? What communion reminds us is that the body of Jesus wasn't just broken as a sort of general statement for humanity but that it was broken for you and for me, for my sin, for the things that have run through my mind, for the wickedness, for the rebellion, for the secret sin, for, for the things that I have done and that you have done that are, worthy of, that are worthy of God's wrath and judgment. Friends, until you understand the severity of your rebellion and your sin and your treason and your glory thievery against the supreme worth of God, you will never truly understand the gospel. And the gospel will never truly take root in your life like it should. And you will never have the affection for Jesus that you should. I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian if you don't deeply understand those things. But what I'm saying, friends, is that the heart of the scriptures, the heart of the good news is understanding how bad the bad news is before it became good in Jesus. So we minimize our sin, and secondly, we minimize the suffering of Jesus. We minimize the suffering of Jesus. You know, I I confess, I I have to jolt myself out of this sort of self-conscious or uh, self-subconscious sort of mindset about Jesus' work on the cross because I think, well, he's he's God. I mean, he kind of knew it was all going to work out in the end. And I just minimize the anguish of the Trinity in the work of the cross. Just minimize it. Like, well, God, I mean, God, did, did God really suffer? I mean, did he really? I mean, was that a traumatic event for the Trinity, for the Father to see the Son suffering on the cross? I mean, they kind of knew it was, you know, knew it was going to happen, knew things were going to work out. Friends, when we think like that, and I confess those things, I have to, I have to jolt myself out of that, that mindset. When we think like that, friends, we, we don't understand the Scriptures. Let me read to you Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 says this in verse 3. 
speaking of Jesus prophetically, he was despised and rejected by men. Speaking of Jesus, looking ahead prophetically to his work on the cross. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one with, with, from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And so God crushes his son on the cross. We, we just minimize how anguishing that must have been for the Trinity. The only thing I can even compare to this. The only, the only and this is infinitesimally, I mean, there's not even a scale for how this doesn't compare. But uh, uh, four or five years ago, my oldest son, Joseph, broke his arm. We had just gotten back from Fort Benning. We went to a ranger school graduation. I think maybe it was Nick Prevets or maybe uh, Peter Corny, one young lieutenant that was at the church. We got back from a ranger school graduation, and um, I was alone with the kids, which is always sort of a hazardous situation, and I was not paying attention like I should have, and Joseph was on a swing set in our backyard, and he, being a daredevil boy of about six or seven years old, jumped off of this swing, trying to do kind of like a kamikaze landing, and broke his wrist. And I was, I was in the house, you know, not paying attention, and I heard him hollering, and I looked out the door, and his arm was crooked. It was, it was a bad fracture. It was obvious. And, uh, and I, I panicked like, you know, dads do, and they don't know what to do. So I, I actually, I think I even left my other son, Jacob, alone. I came back, and get, came back, took him to the neighbor. And so I'm driving to Joseph to the emergency room. Look, it's a broken arm. I know that it's going to be fixed right? I, I know that he's going to go to the doctor. He's going to get it set. He's going to be in a cast. It's going to be okay. This is, not, this is not catastrophic. But we're dealing with a son's broken arm. And in my heart, there was just this anguish. I just, ah, I'm just gripping the steering wheel like I want to just disintegrate it. And I'm just speeding to get to the emergency room. I just couldn't stand it. I just wanted it to be over. And it's just my son's broken arm. I'm not minimizing it at all. I know it's painful for you, Justin. But I mean, I, I just... I, it just, ah, ah, where does that, oh, where does that anguish from the heart of a father come from? It comes because we've been created in the image of God. That emotion comes from the Trinity. And if I'm anguishing over a broken arm that I know is going to be set and be fine, how much more is the father anguishing over the suffering of a son? We, we can't even articulate the depth of the emotion of the Trinity in that. But we minimize it. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. That's why I believe Jesus died on the cross. And, you know, it's just these trite little sayings. Then we just break the gospel down into some silly little thing that we put on a coffee cup. God the Son died, and God the Father anguished over the death of the Son. And He died to be the mediator because of our sin, to take the punishment of my horrendous sin. And he died a horrendous death. So when you come in a moment to this table, don't just shovel in a little chip of bread in your mouth, friends. Be pointed towards the work of Christ on the cross. And before we move on to the third point, because I have a, a soft spot in my heart for people that doubt and want to think through everything intellectually, you may ask, why, why would God even do this? Why would God even allow for human sin to happen in the first place? 
And couldn't there have been a better way for atonement and salvation to be one? I've thought the very same thing. If God is sovereign, which is a foundational truth of the Bible, why would he even allow human sin and fallenness in the first place? You ever thought about that? I think the Bible points us in the direction of an answer. I think that answer is found in Romans chapter 9. So if you're flipping along with me, just go to Romans 9. I just want to address this very briefly and then move on to point number 3. Romans chapter 9 is one of the most important and complex chapters in the entire Bible. It's speaking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, which is not what we're going to unpack in this moment. But I want to point you to verse 19 in the next few verses to give you just a clue of why God would even allow sin. Why God in his sovereign power even allow sin so that he might save people. Before I read this little passage, let me just say, I think that God in his wise, mysterious providence and good and holy wisdom has even allowed for the fall and sin and judgment and salvation because in his mysterious, good, and gracious will, he has deemed that it would be more of a display of his greatness and worth And when you begin to realize that everything that is exists to glorify God, not you and me, our comfort, our happiness, is secondary to God's display of his greatness, you will begin to line yourself up with the way things actually are. Let me read you these verses. These are hard. This is what it says in Romans chapter 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, Paul's having a sort of uh, theoretical debate with what he anticipates are people who have a difficulty with this truth. He says, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? In other words, if God is sovereign, if he's doing all this, then, I mean, is it even fair? We robots. Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use. Listen to verse 22. I think this gets to the heart of this question. Why would God even allow sin and judgment and Christ's death? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, what I think that verse is saying is that God in his wise and mysterious and unknowable sovereign will has determined to allow sin and fall and judgment and suffering, not because he likes those things, In one sense, he hates them. But in another sense, because they more greatly display his grandeur and his holiness and his righteousness and his all-surpassing worth. That may be one of the most difficult truths that there is. 
And the sooner you come to grips with that and wrestle with that truth, the more you align yourself up with the way things are. And the more you will understand the God-centeredness of this table. The more you will realize that the underpinning of Jesus' work on the cross is much more about God's glory than just our salvation. It's a humbling truth. Proverbs 16 says that the Lord has created everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of destruction. Point number three now. One and two, this feast points us to one another. Two, this feast points us to remember Christ's work on the cross. Point number three, this feast points us to examine ourselves. We'll work through, through these next two quickly. This feast points us to examine ourselves. Look at verse 27. Paul now is saying to these Corinthians that there's more going on here than just you being selfish. There's, there's more that you need to think about than just understanding theologically and doctrinally what Jesus' work on the cross meant, as important as that is. Now you must personalize this. This must hit your heart. This must move from a doctrinal statement or a creed or a, a hymn that we sing. This, this, must, this must now move into your own heart. He says in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What is that unworthy manner? Christians for ages have speculated that. Is it, does it mean a person that's not saved it's not yet a Christian. Well, I don't think that's what that means. I think that Paul is referring back to the way that the Corinthians were receiving communion or that he was chastising them for the verses that we read at the beginning about how the, the rich Christians were doing their own thing and they were neglecting the other Christians. In other words, they weren't discerning the needs. They weren't caring for one another. And I think that's the unworthy manner that Paul is speaking to them. And he's saying that, that if, you don't, if you don't think about that, that you're guilty concerning this feast. Verse 28 let a person then examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink the cup. Verse 29. These words are hard. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Does that body mean the body of Jesus? Or does that body mean the body of Christ, the people that are gathered here together? Is that what Paul is saying? I, again, I'm not sure. I think he's probably saying elements of both. If you eat this feast without thinking about Jesus and what he's done for your sin and and you're also thinking about people around you and their, their life and how you might serve them and lay your di- life down for them. Then, and listen to this, you, you eat and drink judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Friends, that's hard. Paul is saying that because you are haphazardly, selfishly, not thinking about one another, and not understanding and remembering what Jesus has done on the cross and partaking of this communion in just sort of this selfish, self-absorbed way that God is judging you and some of you are are getting sick and you're dying because of that. Now, we need to be careful to not build theology off of this one verse because if that was the only verse there and we then started to tie all sin, all sickness and all disease or all death to God punishing our personal sin, then we would run into trouble with the rest of Scripture. Because there are instances, like in John chapter 9, where this man was born blind, where God said, or Jesus says to the onlooking crowd, he says that he was born blind so that through his blindness, and now my healing him, God will get glory. 
All right? So we got to be careful when we overreach on this truth. But here's the point. God can do whatever he wants. And God is serious about this feast. God is serious about the way we treat one another. God is very serious about whether we understand what Christ has done on the cross or not. And at least in this particular instance with the Corinthians, to be an example to the ages, he took some of them out. He took some of them out. Because of their self-absorption. That's a Hebrew word that means chew on that. God killed people. God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That's offensive to arrogant Americans, isn't it? Democracy. Rights. God, God is good. God is wise. God is gracious. God defines goodness. But make no mistake, friends. God is sovereign. And God does what he pleases. That should humble us. And that should cause us to approach this table with a humility and a reverence and a soberness and a outside of ourselves focus on Christ and others that should pervade our worship and our approaching this table. One of two things happen when we examine ourselves. One, conviction. If you're a Christian, you examine your life, you will be convicted, which is a wonderful thing. I won't take the time to do it now, but write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12. When the Holy Spirit hits your heart and you realize that you've been self-absorbed unwittingly or wittingly, or you realize that there is some unrepentant sin, or there's some secret sin in your life that nobody knows about, right now the Holy Spirit can get a hold of that. He can hit your heart, and He brings conviction. Do not mistake conviction with condemnation. Condemnation is what the enemy wants to put in your heart to trick you, to make you think that's God's voice. But friends, the Bible says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is this beautiful thing called conviction, which becomes this beautiful, holy truth and proof of evidence that we are, in fact, God's son or daughter. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 12, that verse that I pointed you to says that when you are convicted, it is, take joy, friends, because it's evidence that God is treating you as a son. And he chastens those whom he loves. And so that's why we don't, I mean, that's why we're not, you know, we don't get in here and just sing all this happy stuff, you know. Our, our worship services are not, a, are not a Bobby McLaren song or whatever that guy was back in the 80s. Just don't worry, be happy. Churches do that all the time, but they lie to their people, friends. The conviction of the scriptures and the Holy Spirit comes and hits our hearts. Friends, we need to be people who take joy in the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's evidence that you're a child of God. So, so as it says in Hebrews 12, don't, 
Don't droop your chin. Strengthen your knees because God is working in you. Respond to him. Don't be driven into despair or condemnation. Be pointed towards Christ and his fatherly love. Secondly, conviction will also bring clarity for you if you're not a Christian. If you are not a Christian, I hope that you realize that. I am aiming for that. I want you to realize you're a Christian. I I would not serve you well. We as a church would not serve you well if we patted you on the back, gave you some little principles on how to have a better Tuesday, and then sent you on your way, making you feel like you did something good on Sunday. We want you to come face to face with the thing that we all, as fellow sinners with you, have come face to face with, that we need Christ. That there are only two eternal possibilities for every soul in this room. A real heaven or a real hell, which is eternal and forever. And you must turn and trust in Jesus. And so friends, this meal that we are about to receive is for Christians. If you are not yet a Christian in here, friends, this this meal is not for you. And if you say to me, oh, well, how, how could you be so rude as to not invite me? I mean, come on, you would not. In- no, friends, this isn't about social awkwardness here. This is about clarifying whether or not you are really a Christian or not. What would it profit us, friends, if we just continued to grow as a church and everybody was happy and everybody was talking about Crosspoint and we had good worship and we preached cute little sermons and we got good little kids stuff going on if we didn't actually cause people to consider whether or not they are truly saved? And you say, if you're a Christian, you say, you say, Brad, do you really want me to question my salvation? Yes, I do occasionally want you to question your salvation. I question my own salvation sometimes. And that's biblical. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, which is Paul's second letter to this jacked up people called the church at Corinth, which is a lot like us. He says, test yourself, lest you be in the faith. And so just because you come to church and you're humming along and your life is full of self-absorption, you need to get your cage rattled by the Holy Spirit and the gospel. I need to get my cage rattled. And so we want this, we, want, we should want this to bring conviction or clarity to our hearts. If you're not a Christian, friends, don't. There will be no judgment. There will be no embarrassment for you to just not receive this meal with us. Churches have different ways of doing this. Some churches restrict the receiving of the Lord's Supper merely to those who are official members of the church. I understand that position. We don't necessarily adhere to that. Other churches just open it up to anybody who's here. I don't understand that position, and we definitely don't adhere to that. The way we guard this table here at this church is by telling you what I just told you. This is a meal for Christians. If you're a Christian, if you have repented and believed in what Jesus has done on the cross as the only mediating work for your sins and eternal life, you are welcome to this table, whether you're a member of this church or not. But friends, if you are not a Christian, this is really not for you. But you may be becoming a Christian right now. You see, friends, do you realize, how do you become a Christian? Believe. Believe in Jesus. How do you know if you're a Christian? Well, do you hear what I said just a moment ago about the gospel? Do you, do you understand those facts that you, you, like everybody else in this room, is a sinner and that God is holy and righteous and you have no chance before God when you die if you stay in your sins, if you don't have a, a mediator? And so now you must trust in Jesus. You must turn from trusting in yourself or your sins 
And you must turn and believe in Jesus. This is called repentance. Turning from sin, turning from self-righteousness. Biblical word is repentance. And you must turn towards trust in Jesus. That's called faith. William Arnaud, this, this British theologian back in the 1800s, put it so well. I like the way he said it. You've heard me say this a lot. He says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sins and another does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin, whereas the sinner, the non-Christian, is taking sin's side against the dreaded God. Friends, you can believe in God and not be a Christian. The issue is, whose side are you on? Your sins, your self-reliance, or God's? So friends, even right now, come, come to Christ. Trust in him. Look to Jesus right now, friend. Just a moment ago when I was saying, if you're not a Christian, don't come to this table. Friends, right now you can trust in Jesus and you can be welcome to this table. Turn right now. This isn't a process. This isn't a Sunday school class. This isn't a catechism. This isn't memorizing scripture. You don't have to know anything. But this one great truth that Christ justifies the ungodly and you need only to look away from yourself and your sin and to look to Jesus do it right now friends believe believe I plead with you to believe stop stop the religious game stop the hypocrisy be real for once and trust in Christ friends do it right now Right now, believe and you're welcome to this table. Believe and you're welcome to this table. Point number four, and I end on this. This feast points us to the future when Jesus will come again and make all things new. In verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So in just a moment when the Christians in this room gather around this table and take these little pieces of bread, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus, the juice represents this new covenant of grace in his blood. We are personally appropriating that death of God on the cross for us we're personally preaching that message to ourselves and the world. And then we are saying that he is coming again. Robert started off our service by reading from Isaiah chapter 25. I'll read just a few lines of it again in Isaiah chapter 25. Friends, there's coming a day when all death, all brokenness, all sin will finally be made right. This feast, this great, the Bible calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation. This great feast that this feast is pointing to. It would look like this in Isaiah 25, 6. On the mountain, on this mountain of the Lord of hosts, will make for all his peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. 
We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in our salvation. Friends, this feast points us not just to ourselves in this moment and these 80 years. This feast points us to eternity. And when you know what eternity holds, friends, you can face the fiercest of battles here on this earth. When you know what awaits you forever, what can, what can this world do to you? Remember that quote from Peter Kreft? I read it a few times. That, that, that great uh, uh, writer, of, he wrote this book called Heaven. Actually, I don't know where this guy is spiritually. I think he might be a Catholic believer, but he wrote this book called Heaven. Listen to this quote. He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you can have free for the asking your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you, friend, if you were guaranteed heaven? And heaven is Christ. Heaven isn't wings and harps. And heaven is Christ. What can earth do to you if you're guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny less, even a scratch of a penny. Oh, friends, this feast points us towards the certain reality that we will be with Christ forever and death will be swallowed up forever. Spurgeon put it this way in a communion sermon, and I end with this quote. He said, I anticipate that some will say, am I then to have Jesus Christ by only taking him? In just a moment, we're going to take this bread. Don McKelvey is going to lead us in this feast. I'm just going to take it and eat it. I anticipate some will say, am I then to have Jesus by only taking him? Yes. Just so. Do you need a Savior? There he is. Take. Do you desire to be delivered from the power of your sin? He can deliver you. Take. Do you desire to lead a holy, godly life? Here's the one who can wash you and enable you to live like this. Take him. He is as free as the air. You have no more to pay for Christ than you have to pay for the next breath that goes into your lungs. Take him in. Take him in, friends. Take in this richest feast on all the earth. My Lord, as we come now to your table, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts. Now, Lord, I confess that uh, I, as one of the leaders of this church, as we've grown, I, I've actually so convicted this week as I realized I have been more concerned about the logistical flow of our communion than I have been thinking about what Jesus has done and examining my life. I repent of that self-absorption. Lord, would you help us now as people as your people, as believers in Jesus. Remember Jesus' work on the cross. Examine ourselves in light of it. And the Holy Spirit, would you push on us so that we would see others as more, more important than ourselves, that we would esteem others more highly than ourselves, and that we would fearlessly see heaven 
and its reality in that great feast when death is swallowed up. Would you do that now, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen.